All right, so today is the uh, fourth Sunday. We're going to do something that we started last month that was new, but we don't want it to be special. It's going to be something that we consistently do as a body and as we gather together for our services, and that is preach on justice, on God's justice, biblical justice. We want to take the time to do that. Uh, and explaining that, as I did last time, we have this righteousness that we've been given from God vertically, and justice is literally living out that righteousness horizontally with others, with the creation, how we respond as His sons and daughters to those around us and how we treat them with care, with love, and respect. We looked at in the scriptures, there are four primary groups that you see repeated over and over again throughout the scriptures. Uh, I called them the big four. You see the orphan, the widow, the stranger, or the immigrant, and the poor. Over and over again, you see those four mentioned, those categories of those that were marginalized, those that were vulnerable in their society. Following Jesus as King includes seeking justice. We've been commanded to seek justice. God has given us that commandment. And that justice is to care for, to literally care for those relationships, those others. But it's also to take up the cause of others. It's both, right? It's actually lending our hand, but also giving our voice, giving our privilege, giving our power for the care of others. So it's both the care and the cause, defending the least in our culture. Those are the least economic power. Those are the least social power. That's what God has done. That's what God claims that He does. And that's what we as followers of Jesus Christ are to do as well. It's a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And so last month we began with the immigrant. It's appropriate for us in this place, in this time. It's appropriate to consider God's heart for the immigrant. And immigration is simply the movement of people crossing borders, human beings crossing borders. And that's the nature of our history. That's the nature of the history of man. The history of humans is migration. It's not new. It's something that's been throughout time. I wanted us to have perspective. And I think we need to be reminded of this. You can see globally, 244 million immigrants in the world right now that are living in a home in a nation where they were not born. They moved, they migrated, they're living in a place as a foreigner, as an immigrant. Nationally here in the United States, 41 million plus immigrants are in the United States. More than any country in the world, the United States has the most immigrants of any country in the entire world. California, 10 plus million. The United States has the most immigrants of any country in the world. California has the most immigrants of any state in our country. Los Angeles, 3.5 million immigrants. 3.5 million in this county and where we stand right now that were not born in the United States. More than any county in the entire country right where we are right now to put that in the picture right some of us learn better visually one out of every four 25% of the immigrants in our country live in California. Every immigrant in our country, one out of every four lives here in this state. And then if you look at Los Angeles, amongst us, one out of every three individuals that live in this county were born in another country. Okay, That's the reality. That's the statistic reality of our situation. That's the perspective. I asked you then, well, what's your perspective? We all, if we live 
live in this county, we live in this state, we live in this country, we've had experience. We either are an immigrant, we've had experience with immigrants. So what's your perspective? We then wrote down our perspective. I said, what was the first word that comes to mind when I say the word immigrant or immigration? Not what you think you should say, but what actually comes to your mind. We wrote all of these things down. There's only a couple positive. Right? That's what this, is at the top of our heads. That's what we hear continually in our culture, in the media, in politics, in our relationships from others. Okay? The top word, I shared with you this poll, this questionnaire, four times more likely than any other word was illegal. I just told you there were 41 million immigrants in our country and the first word that comes to mind is illegal. Four times more likely than any other word. That's our perspective. And I asked the question for us. Who is it that's informed our perspective? What is it that's informed our perspective? Have we as Christians actively considered, thought about, prayed about immigration and immigrants? And not just thought about it, but then have we responded? Have we as Christians, right? Have we taken God's word, what he said about immigration and immigrants, understood that and then actually responded? Actually acted that out? Actually sought justice? Not just what we confess to or acknowledge, but actually what we live out. Have we sought the care and to stand for the cause of those amongst us? Because following Jesus as King, we have to build our understanding. Our foundation has to be this. Our, our understanding, our belief has to be according to this. This is our authority. This is God's word to us. He's given it to us. What does God say about the immigrant and immigration in here? And how is that going to inform us to respond? How are we going to seek justice according to God's word? That's our authority. That's our God. That's where we began the conversation last time. I don't really care what you think. I don't care what the media thinks. I don't care what my friends at work think. I first need to care, what does God think? What does He say? What has He communicated to me? And so we began with His Word. We began in Genesis 1. We began with these individuals, these human beings created and made in the image of God. Because ultimately immigration is about people. It's about people, human beings created in the image of God that are crossing borders. So we began there. Let me read again Genesis 1, 27 through the first part of 28. It says, So God created mankind, humankind, in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. When we first consider immigration, the immigrant, we want to see the humanity of the immigrant. We looked at three different things. Theologically, that their immigrant made in the image of God has worth. They were a part of humanity. They are a part of the high point of creation. Okay? God got to this point. He says, I'm going to do something completely different now. I'm going to make humans in my image. Immigrants are made in the image of God. They have unbelievable worth. But then practically we see here they have potential. They have immeasurable potential to contribute to society, to contribute to our culture, to go out and rule, to go out and care for the creation, to contribute and participate in what God is doing. Because they're made in the image of God, they have this potential. 
And we have to believe those truths. We have to believe those truths because they're made in the image of God. And then by faith, we have to respond. But I said to respond, it actually has to not just be theological, not just be practical, but actually become personal. That we need to enter into relationships. Because part of the image of God is that we have been made and created with this potential, this capacity for relationships. We can have this interpersonal relationship with God because we've been reconciled and restored. We can have this relationship with each other. We can have a relationship with the creation around us. God has created us for relationships. And if we're going to understand and inform ourselves according to God's word about immigration, then we need to be in relationships with immigrants. We need to actually listen to immigrants. Close our mouths and listen to their stories. Close our mouths, sit at their feet and learn from them what they've gone through, what their experience has been. And then we need to respond with love. I tried to give you a taste of that. Sylvia shared for, her, shared for us her story. And that's one story amongst us. There's so many different stories, okay? That's one story. But we as a body wanted to sit, to listen, and to learn, and to love Sylvia as we understood her story as an immigrant. That's how God has created us. In His infinite wisdom, in all of His sovereignty, He created immigrants in the image of God, in His own image. That's what God decided. That's how God set it up. And I left us with this idea of we need this understanding and we desperately as followers of Christ need immigrants. The New Testament is clear. You read First Peter. This is not our home. We are literally called strangers here, foreigners here, right? This is temporary. We are living here as immigrants on earth. This is not where we end up. This is not where we stay. And we're to live and follow Jesus Christ as immigrants right here, right now, in this place. No matter who you are, you are a spiritual immigrant. And the more we understand about immigration, the more we understand the experience of the immigrants amongst us, the better and the more we will follow Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor for the Christian life. This is the journey that we're on. So we ended last time with a story. I want to start with a story. It was a story of Sylvia. I want to tell you a story of another family member that's connected to Living Stones. This family was actually uh, born in the Middle East. Um, throughout much of the life together, they uh, couldn't get established enough to stay in one place. And so amongst their people, they moved around. They, they had agricultural work. They had to work with their hands, had to work in the fields. And they continued to move from place to place amongst their people, trying to establish themselves. And through their entire lives, it hadn't actually worked out. They hadn't become established. But then late in their lives to this family, they say that God spoke to them. And God says, I'm going to take you from this place. And I, this is where I want you to go. And so they listen to God. And they go and they do what God has said to do. But then while they're there, doing what God told them to do, what they heard from God, they run into economic issues. They can't provide for their family. They can't put food on the table. Uh, they've gone where God has told them to go, but then they're still in need. Their, their family is going to die. They are not going to survive. So they decide to leave this land, to leave this place where they were born there in the Middle East, and they cross borders. They go into another nation. They become immigrants. And when they cross the border, they do it illegally. And when they cross the border, at first, they're undocumented. 
But then they go into that land and God blesses them. Now who am I talking about? Abraham. Okay. A part of our family. Connected to us. That's his story. That's Sarah's story. And I want to walk through different stories in Scripture today, right? We're, we're to be informed by God's Word. So I want us to read some of these stories, to remember some of these stories with actually a lens of, wow, is this actually a, a, a story of migration? A story of an immigrant? So what I'm asking for you this morning is to, if you were in Sunday school as a kid, I learned all these stories with a Xerox white sheet of paper, you know, with a contour drawing of the Bible character, right? That's how I learned them. I want you to let all that go. And I want us to listen again to these stories with the perspective of migration, with the perspective of God taking His people and God moving His people and God calling His people to cross borders, to move from place to place. Can you guys listen that way? Right? It doesn't just happen like that, I promise. I've been studying and reading and considering. This is something I've been wrestling with for years and I still have to remind myself, no, 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 no. Let me just go to his word. Let me submit to his word. Let me bow down and, and, and Lord, would you speak to us? Would, would we be humble before you and hear what you're saying to us? His word is our authority. It is truth. But being an immigrant is not new for his people. As I said, since the beginning, since the story of God began, his people have been on the move and they have identified themselves as immigrants. And so that's where I want to move today. Not just the humanity of immigrants, right? That's very broad and very general. That's where we start. But let's get more specific in the actual identity of immigrants in God's Word. In his story. Have you ever read the scriptures with that perspective? A story of migration. These individuals created in the image of God with worth, with potential, with the capacity for relationships, on the move, crossing borders, and living as immigrants. So if you guys will turn to Deuteronomy, chapter 26. We're going to start with Abraham. I mentioned some of the story, but I want us to actually read this word. This is in Deuteronomy. This is after the story of Abraham where the Israelites are looking back. This is how they describe Abraham. This is a, a first fruits where they've been brought into the land, they've been brought into the promised land, and they're, they're describing Abraham in this passage. So let me read in English Deuteronomy 26, verse 5 through 9. Then you shall declare before the Lord, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. As I was studying more specifically this week, I, I knew that, right? I'd studied this before. I knew that Abraham, you know, had wandered, he had immigrated, he had gone into Egypt. And then I'm reading this passage about how he was identified by his own people. I'm like, he was a wandering Aramean. I mean, what's an Aramean? And I'm sitting with Nidia, she's reading, I'm studying. And I look it up. It's a modern day Syrian. Abraham, the father of our faith, was an immigrant Syrian. And I'm like, what? In my mind, I, 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 this is not new to me, right? But I'm looking at the specific piece. I'm like, and, and I start to cry. I like start to break down. Like I feel the father of our faith was an immigrant from Syria. 
es un inmigrante de Siria. And my mind just begins to raise and I begin to think about everything that's happening and occurring in our world right now. In Syria. But this is where the father of our faith immigrated from. This was his home country, his nation. And I began to look up. This is from World Relief on their website, a Christian organization, Syria, right now. Right now, today. 13.5 million individuals there are in desperate need of humanitarian assistance. In need of care. 4.9 million Syrians since the civil war began in 2011 have now immigrated out of their country and are living as refugees, have left their country, have left home. 4.9 million. And then there says there's another 6.1 million that are currently displaced. They had to leave their homes, leave their city, but they're still within Syria. Half of all those numbers are children. I'm trying to tell my wife this. And I'm, what does that mean? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Do you, do you realize that the father of our faith was a Syrian immigrant? And I'm sitting here drinking coffee, studying with you. I never even thought about that. I never even understood that. And what, what am I then supposed to do with that? Would I listen differently to what's going on in the world? Would I, would I respond differently if I understood that? I was overwhelmed. I'm still not sure what to do with it. And so that's what I want to do with you guys this morning. It's overwhelm you. Make you feel like, well, I'm not sure what to do with all this. But as you consider Abraham, you look in Genesis 12, why did he go to Egypt? Why did he become an immigrant? Because there was a famine, because he couldn't feed his family, because the economic situation was they were not going to survive. So they go to Egypt. He decides he has this, it says a small people, his clan, his family. And they come and they're going to Egypt. And we know at that time there were border patrols in Egypt, okay? Anthropologically studied, they, they, they had people coming and going in and out of Egypt. It was a land of opportunity. They had the Nile. They, they were, it was always fertile. There was always food. All these others in the Middle East had famine. They had food and they care for people. You could survive there. So Abraham with Sarah, his wife, began to emigrate. And on the way to the border, Abraham says, listen, Sarah, when we get to the border and they begin to ask us questions, just tell them you're my sister. I know you're my wife, but that's not going to work out for us. I'm not going to go into detail as to why that won't work out, but that won't work out. So just trust me and lie at the border and they'll let us in. The father of our faith schemed to get across the border. His wife said she was his sister and put herself in a place of extreme vulnerability. Like, why did they do that? Why, why would they do those things? He's the father of our faith. He's heard from God. He's listening to Him. He trusts God. The other option was to go back and to starve. His family would have died. That's how Abraham Immigrated. As I was preparing, it kept going through my head. I'm right back to the Xerox cartoons that I learned the stories from. And then I was taught this song in my Baptist church. Father Abraham. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. 
So let's all praise the Lord. Father Abraham, many kids. We're going to change it. Many kids had Father Abraham. We're all one of them. So are you. So let's all praise the Lord. Our father was a, was a scheming immigrant that crossed the border illegally and that lived there without papers until they found out she is your wife. So let's all praise the Lord. Because we're in his family. That's the father of our family, the father of our faith. Okay? Okay. That's what the word says. Right? Have you ever seen Abraham's story from that perspective? I'm not saying that the other things we've learned about Abraham are not true, but this is a part of his story. This is a part of God's word. We need to have that perspective. Again, I'm not going to tell us what that means. Right. We'll get there. I want you guys to be uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. I don't, I'm not really sure. We need together to figure this out. But first we're going to listen to God's word. And then we'll respond to God's word. A couple generations later. Joseph. He's probably a jerk kid. He had his father's favor. His brothers sell him into service into Egypt. They get rid of him. He becomes an immigrant in Egypt. But he works really hard. Right? He's faithful. He, he continues. He's, he's trustworthy. And he gets put over Potiphar's house. This large household, this powerful man with privilege in Egypt. And Joseph rises as an immigrant because of his work ethic. But then what happens? Potiphar's wife. Right? She comes after Joseph. She tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph says, I don't want anything to do with that. Joseph runs away. But when the authorities came and when they had to figure this out, who did they believe? This hardworking immigrant that had worked his way up and had this position in Potiphar's house? And let me put it in perspective. Or this woman, this Egyptian woman, in that time, in that culture, had no standing. Yes, you might think, oh, well, she was Potiphar's wife. She was a woman. She, she couldn't even go before, her word wasn't believed in court, right? If they had to go before a judge and someone to make a ruling, she wasn't allowed to speak. And they believe that woman over the immigrant. It's a big deal. It's a different perspective to have. Do we listen? Do we consider all the facts? As situations present themselves among us? Joseph keeps on. He's honorable. He begins to interpret dreams in prison. He's let out of prison. He continues to work. He works his way back up, right? He had no opportunity, right? He was actually pulled back, put into prison, and he works his way out again. He's in the highest position, highest government position in all of Egypt. Reporting to Pharaoh. And if you read the story, you realize that he began to assimilate over time into the Egyptian culture. He had an Egyptian wife. He worked in the Egyptian government. He began to dress like an Egyptian. He had would have shaved his head, would have worn makeup, would have had the dress that, that uh, demonstrated his authority, his position. But he still names his kids Hebrew names. Come on, Joseph. How long have you been here? You're in the highest position in Egypt and you still want to hold on to your home country where they kicked you out and put you into slavery? You want to give your kids Hebrew names? We're living in Egypt. Just give them Egyptian names. Have we ever thought something similar? But then Joseph's family immigrates. 
Why did they immigrate? Because of economics, because of family, because of survival, for an opportunity to live. And they come before Joseph. And he's so assimilated, he's so, it's been years, but I'm pretty sure that I would recognize my brother, okay, 20 years from now, okay? But they can't recognize Joseph. And Joseph goes along with it. And they're immigrants. So they need an interpreter. So Joseph has to stand there and he lets it go on and on and the interpreter is interpreting for them then he goes behind out of the view and he begins to weep and cry. I've transitioned into this other culture and now I realize this is my family and now they're here with me and how am I going to recognize that? Not just all the things that they did but do you think that there was some embarrassment to stand there assimilated into the Egyptian culture and my first generation immigrants show up. This is my dad and my brothers. They don't even speak our language and they were shepherds despised by the Egyptians. They despised shepherds so much they gave them a corner of the delta. You guys, you shepherds, go live over here. We'll give you this land over in the corner, out of the way. That's the story. I'm like, man, they, they need an interpreter. It probably cost the government a lot of money to be able to have that conversation. I mean, why can't, why can't they just learn the language? Why couldn't these immigrants that came in, I mean, their, 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 their son and their brother was in the highest position in the Egyptian government and they can't even speak the language. We had to provide all these resources to the Egyptian government to interpret for them and translate for them and communicate with them. Like, why hadn't they learned the language? I'm pretty sure they were just trying to survive. I'm pretty sure all of their efforts was towards to make it to the next day, to what they needed to survive so they could live one more day and one more day and one more day. I mean, they got up and left their homes and immigrated to another country where they were going to be lowly just so they could survive and live. I haven't learned Spanish. My wife speaks Spanish. My kids now speak Spanish. But you know, I, I, we left Atlanta, where all I knew was taco, burrito, which is not even a real word. That's the only word my dad knew, burrito. That is burrito. He's like, yeah, that's what I said, burrito. Right? But then we move. And, and, and I'm going to school and I've got a full-time job and, and we're starting to have kids. I, I'm going to learn Spanish though, but I've got to make it to tomorrow and this week and this exam and this paycheck. And then we moved from Chicago. We had Hispanic friends, but I still couldn't learn. Then we moved from Chicago to here, to Lanark. 95% of my neighbors are immigrants and they're Hispanic and I still, six years here, do I speak Spanish? Thank you, Mommy. Thank you. She says, poquito. <laughs> What's up? Well, I've got a job, and I'm the pastor, and we're in this neighborhood, and I have four kids, and, and you guys are really needy. You know, I'll get to that. But my kids know Spanish. The next generation knows English. Man, but mom and dad and then grandparents, man, they came and tell her what they're saying. And then, okay. I wanted to tell you guys. As I got to this point, every time that I've shared the vision of Livingstone with any other pastor or someone who's gone to seminary someone who's like dug into the word and they say oh yeah we should be multi-ethnic absolutely it's in the word I see that I'm convinced of it we should be multi-class absolutely the, the gospel should break down those barriers and yes according to the word I see that we should be multilingual like that shouldn't stop us but Brit that's not going to work it's not practical it's not pragmatic you can't ask people to be in a place where there's two different languages and where you're not speaking in their heart language and others aren't speaking in their heart language and, and then they're going to get together and share life together that's not going to work 
And I just want to say, as the pastor, you will never have to learn English to be a part of this body. Never. And if you feel limited because of your limited English proficiency, please share with us, talk with us. What can we do? How can we involve? Okay? You do not. It is not an expectation. And it will never be an expectation. Whatever your language, other than English, it's not an expectation. God can do that. Next, the Israelites. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 through 14. We'll read this together. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. That's what God's Word says about His people. You read on? What were they being used for? Construction, agriculture. They were building their buildings. They were working their fields. That's what the Israelites were doing in Egypt. But what triggered this response? We've got to deal shrewdly with them. We've got to do something about this. I mean, look out. I'm a new king in place now. And look out amongst us. We've got to respond. We've got to do something about this. What was it that led to that? Fear. There's so many. It says they, it says they, they were exceedingly fruitful. Like those Israelites, they just keep reproducing and they're just expanding and they're gonna, they're gonna be the majority soon. And and what if we get attacked and then our enemy comes in and they join the enemy? What about our power? What about our position? What about our privilege? Let's act shrewdly and do something. We've got to control them. We've got to do something about this situation. But it was because of fear. And I'll tell you, it wasn't because of their legality. It wasn't because if they had or didn't have documentation. It was because of fear. We're not worried about individuals' legal status. We're worried about the number of those people. They're everywhere. They're growing. They're multiplying. There's too many. Let's do something about it. So I want to give you an example of those people. I'm going to give you some statistics of those people. And I want you to tell me which people I'm talking about. Okay? It's a immigrant community, foreign-born, here in the United States, that were born in another nation. Okay. Your job is to tell me, at the end of my statistics, what nation I'm talking about. What nation did these foreign-born individuals that live in the United States come from? You ready? Since 1965, which is when the last immigration legislation was put in place that's, that's the law today here in the United States, this foreign-born population has increased 28 times over. Again and again and again and again and again and again and again. 28 times over. This population since 1965. The United States is the largest concentration of individuals born in this country outside of 
their country. More people from this country live in the United States than any other country in the entire world except for the country where they came from. And individuals that live here that are from this country are less likely to speak English than individuals that came from than, than the rest of the immigrants, the rest of the foreign born. Okay? So this country, their population is less likely to speak English than other foreign born individuals in the United States. And 20%, greater than 20% of those from this country living in our country, living in the United States, are currently undocumented, are illegal. What country? China. I heard of Mexico, I heard of China. Keep guessing. Korea. Korea. I just described to you Korean immigrants. That's what the data says. That's, those are the statistics. And to ask permission for this. But when you guys met Tim Kim, did you say, man, I wonder if he has papers. I wonder if he's documented. What, what, why is he here? What's his purpose? What's he up to? Did that go through your mind? Because according to the statistics, you meet a Korean, they're at the top of the list for those that are undocumented. But see, they have come, they have more individuals that have come on an HB1 visa that's for a highly skilled job and position, an educated position than any other group, and they come as students. But they overstayed their visa, they're undocumented, they're illegal more than any other nation of origin. And you know that part of Korea is North Korea. That's a dangerous place. Do you know that Tim's family migrated from North Korea to South Korea after the war? They migrated because of economics, because of opportunity to survive. Uh, one of his family members came and lived on the streets in South Korea trying to support and care for his family. And then they migrated here to the United States for an opportunity for economics. We need to change our perspective. When we consider those people. And I don't say that disrespectfully. I say that with respect and, and out of ad admiration. I have no idea what that's like. There is nothing that I can do whatsoever to be an immigrant here in this country. I can do, there's, I have no power, no process to be an immigrant here. Ashley, you were born where? North Carolina. Close to my heart. She cannot be an immigrant. No way, no how, there's no opportunity for her. She cannot be an immigrant here in the United States. But how do I see God's Word? They're everywhere. We need to protect ourselves. We need to do something about this. We need to control them, control their population. They're going to take over. They're going to take over. What did Egypt do? Pharaoh says, well, let's start killing the boys. Let's control this population. Any of the Hebrew boys, we're going to kill. We can't allow them to continue to multiply like they're multiplying. And then they said, we're going to 
increase their workload. We're going to add regulations. We're going to make it more difficult for them to work. They've been building all our buildings with all these bricks. They're, they're, they're building our dynasty. But you know what? From now on, because there's so many, we're going to make it more difficult. Let's make them go get the straw for their bricks and add to the bricks and then prepare the bricks and do more work than is humanly possible. We'll just put those regulations in place. We'll make it harder for them to work. Harder for them to participate. Harder for them to continue to build our buildings and care for our agriculture. It's in the story. Go read it. We're dependent on them, but but we're fearful. It didn't make economic sense in Israel. It makes no economic sense whatsoever for them to do what they did. Let's, we've got this labor force. We're dependent on this labor force. This labor force has built our empire. But let's start killing them off. And let's start adding regulations to make it more difficult. But that doesn't make economic sense, but it makes cultural sense. Because, man, there's so many of them, and, man, we're fearful. Should this impact our perspective? How we control. How we regulate. How we respond to immigration. The Israelites were rescued out of Egypt. They go through the wilderness. They make it to the promised land. At the time of Judges, we see this story in the Bible of Ruth. She was a Moabite, an immigrant that came to Israel. But the story doesn't start with her. The story starts with her mother-in-law, Naomi, her husband, and her two boys that are in Israel, and they have to leave Israel. Why? Because of famine? Because they can't feed their families? Because there's no opportunity for them to survive there? So they leave and they migrate and they cross this border and they go into Moab. Did they want to go to Moab? Were they excited about being Moabites? No. But it was for the survival of their family. And then you see in the very first chapter, in like one or two verses, they enter into, and then Ruth's husband dies. I'm sorry, let me start over. They enter in, her two boys get married to these Moabite women. And then over this period of, I think it's about 10 years, her husband dies and her two sons dies, die. And now Naomi, who is an Israelite living in Moab as an immigrant, is also a widow. The orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. So she's got three of those checked off right now. And she's living in Moab. She hears like, well, things are better back home now. I've got no chance of surviving here. I'm going to now migrate back and go back to Israel. And she says to her two daughter-in-laws that are left, that are widows as well, who married these Israelite boys, Listen, it is better for you. Just stay here. I'm, I'm going back. And one of the daughters, Orpah, says, Adios. And the other, Ruth, says this. And it's the one passage that you all know from Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 16. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Do we realize what Ruth is doing? Ruth is there in her country. She's a widow, but she's young. She's like, I'm going to go with you, Naomi. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. And I'm going to go with you and be a widow and an immigrant. Because I'm going to be with you. We're in this together. I'm not going to leave you. You're going to go back and be a widow, Naomi. You're going to need others with you to help you and to be with you. To work together. Nothing. 
Cero. Nada. She doesn't say anything. This, this daughter, what would you do, moms, if you have daughter-in-law? If your daughter says, I am going with you. My husband died, your son died, but I am with you. I am supporting you. I'm going to go be an orphan, I mean, a widow and an immigrant with you. I'm going to take what that means. I'm going to go in this place of more vulnerability because I'm with you. Like that's, wow. Naomi doesn't even respond. There's nothing recorded here. And I'm reading this, and I'm like, why would Naomi, who had been an immigrant, living in Moab all that time, experiencing life as an immigrant, trying to survive, trying to feed her family, then have the chance to go back, and this woman is willing to go back with her and be an immigrant too. Like, how come Naomi couldn't appreciate that? She, she had been an immigrant. And now Ruth is going to come and be an immigrant with her and she says nothing. She has immigrant amnesia. Like, how can you forget that you were just an immigrant, Naomi? And, and you know how hard it is. How many times amongst us? How many times in this neighborhood? Have I heard those that came undocumented? But now had an opportunity, a pathway, or even citizens. And they have family members that showed up the same way that they showed up and they stand and sit in judgment over them. Like, oh, I can't believe they're doing what they're doing. How are they here without papers? And they're undocumented. Like, but, and I'm sitting there in this living room like, but, but, but you did the same thing. You are an immigrant and you can't remember? How could you forget so quickly what it was like? But Ruth never recognizes it. I'm sorry, Naomi never recognized And I don't know, maybe when she got back to Israel, like, it was embarrassing. Yeah, I left. I lost everything. And all I have of me is this Moabite girl that reminds me of everything that went wrong. I'm so focused on myself, I can't even see what she's done for me. But then Ruth begins to work. She was allowed to go into the fields and to glean and to pick up the leftovers in the field so she could survive. And then Boaz, this Israelite, this man of standing, this man of power, this man of privilege, it says that he saw her in the fields. He, he, he noticed her. He recognized her. And I've even heard this preached. Well, it must have been Ruth was a looker. She must have been a beautiful woman for Boaz to have seen her and recognized her. I'm like, what? Where is that in the text? It's not in the text. But I've heard that preached. But it says right before that she was working from the morning to the evening. She didn't stop. She took a small break and then continued to work and continued to work. She had this incredible work ethic. And Boaz looks across the fields that he is overseeing and he sees this new immigrant fresh into the country working her butt off. And she doesn't stop. And she keeps working. And she keeps working. She's doing what no one else will do. She's going behind the harvesters and picking up the scraps so that she can survive, so that her family can survive. Could it possibly be that he noticed her? He sees her in the field because, wow, that one hasn't stopped working all day long. And as they refer to her, to Ruth, again and again, it's, it's that Moabite. She still doesn't have a name in Israel. In the story, it's that Moabite woman. That immigrant woman. They won't even refer to her by her name. Look at those Mexicans. Look at all those Mexicans, how hard they work. Look at those Latinos. Look at, man. They work hard, though. I don't know any of them. I don't have relationships with them, but man, they work hard. They'll do the work that no one else wants to do. 
hacen el trabajo que nadie quiere hacer. But you guys, if you know the story, Ruth is redeemed. She is accepted. It must have been because of her work ethic. She just kept working, kept working, kept gleaning, kept gleaning. So she could survive and survive. That's not what the story communicates. She's gleaning. She's surviving. She's doing everything she can to make it to the next day and provide for her mother. And then in the story, it says that she goes into the threshing floor where Boaz was. And it says that he's eaten and that he's drank. He's pretty satisfied. And she lays herself at his feet up underneath his blanket. She puts herself in this place of complete vulnerability. And I'm like, why did she do that? She had no other options. She could continue to glean for the rest of her life and barely make it one day to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Or she could go to this individual of privilege, of power, and put herself at his feet and say, please, please, will you give me an opportunity? I need you to be able to move from this place. If not, I am going to be gleaning in this field for the rest of my life, fighting for my survival. The only way in that culture that she could be removed out of that place was for someone of privilege to actually give her the opportunity to get out of that place. And she puts herself there at his feet, vulnerable. She could have been stoned. But what else can she do? And Boaz responds with compassion. And he redeems her. He gives her an opportunity. And she has a son named Obed. A half-breed. He's half Hebrew, half Moabite. That wouldn't have been accepted in their culture. Can you imagine when he went to school? Her parents' conference and he had to get the teachers. He had to, he had to interpret for his own mom because she couldn't speak Hebrew. Was he a Moabite? Was he Hebrew? Like, what was he? He'd be with the Moabite family and, and he couldn't really communicate with them and they didn't fully accept him. Like, you're, you're, a, you're an Israelite. And then he'd be with the Israelites in the majority culture and they'd be like, no, you're a Moabite. Obed, Obed, through Ruth, a de Ruth, this widowed immigrant woman, leads to King David, is in the line of King David, which is in the line of Jesus Christ. Read the beginning of Matthew. That's a big deal. And the only reason that that occurred was because Boaz, this man of privilege, said, okay, I'll give you an opportunity. I'll give you a hand up. I'll walk with you. I'll share life with you. There's a lot more. I'm going to stop. Read Daniel. Read Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. Read, this is your homework, read Psalm 137. It's a psalm for immigrants. The Israelites writing this song, this psalm of David as an immigrant. And what they're struggling with and what they're going through. It is all throughout this book. Do you guys get the picture? Like, I, I dare you to go home and to read these stories with that perspective, with that in mind, and say, I'm going to sit humbly, Lord, before you. Speak to me. Show me this. Let me understand your story of migration. The father of our faith was a 
Syrian immigrant. Era un immigrante sirio. Moses, Moisés, the hero of the faith that rescued the people. De la fe que rescató a la gente. A criminal immigrant. Un immigrante. Who married criminal. a woman from another culture. Y María, and went back. Immigrante de otra cultura. So Moisés se casó con un immigrante. That's the father, that's the hero of our faith. And I would tell you that the savior and the lord of our faith was an immigrant. He left the kingdom of heaven. He crossed the border into this place, into this earth, and became one of us and lived amongst us and took up our cause and cared for us. As an immigrant from heaven, he sought our justice. He was also a refugee. He had to flee to Egypt because of persecution. Do you guys see this? Again and again and again. And I shared this because we need to start here. We'll get to, so what does that mean? How are we actually to respond to those amongst us, those around us, those in relationship with us? How are we to respond? How is God directing us to respond? And then, what does that mean in this culture, and the politics, and the legality? Like, we've got to get to that. But a lot of Christians want to start at Romans 13. Romans 13 is around page 2,000 in my Bible. Okay? Let's, let's actually walk through God's story and understand Romans 13 in context of His story before we decide what that means and what to do. We've got to get there. We've got to decide what that means, what we're to do. I'm not saying we ignore that. It's a part of God's Word. But there is a lot more we need to actually walk through and consider before we get there. That's what I want us to do. And I want us to see that you are in the text. If you were an immigrant, this book is all about you. Your stories are in here. God's family is an immigrant family. See yourself in the text. Your story is here. And we need to hear your story. If we're going to live as immigrants here, this is not our home. We need you. We need to learn from you. We need to listen to you. To follow Jesus Christ.